Welcome back to the Reptiles and Research Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Sinclair, and in today's episode, we have Dave Lorks. Now, Dave is very well known in the UK. He used to be quite a big character across the south of the UK, working in many different shops, working in some zoos down here, before moving to New Zealand to go work at Auckland Zoo with all their native species and with some exotic species as well as a leadership role with the reptile team so dave's got a breadth of experience this was a fantastic conversation we go into the nitty-gritty of like what it's like to work with tuatara how he felt with his collection working with reptiles professionally and the, the struggles he went through some of his learning experiences across his career and how he developed as a keeper and some key moments throughout working in shops and zoos there were turning points for his development as a keeper and also we go into positive lists and welfare of that kind and that nature. And Dave has some pro-positive list opinions that some of you may not agree with. But also I feel like it's very important that you listen to someone else's point of view to really understand the pros and cons of the whole scenario. I don't think we should be blind, rabid dogs barking at the mailman or any any threat each time. I think it should be a well-articulated, understood rebuttal of something if that's the way you are so inclined but you must understand the pros and cons so i enjoyed this i'm not like gritted to the teeth screaming about positive lists i like to have a very balanced conversation and i can kind of see dave's point of view as well so it's a really great conversation so i love this chat before we get into it thank you so much to custom reptile habitats for sponsoring the channel they're keeping us going they're helping us a significant amount of running this show and this channel if you want some premium pvc enclosures head on over to the link in the description to custom reptile habitats for some great enclosures if you're seeking a sense of community with other watchers of this channel who are passionate about science and reptiles then why not join our discord there'll be a link in the description where you'll get access to joining our discord group where all of us chat and get to know each other and chat about reptiles and normally they're taking a piss out of me but there you go go ahead and join from the link below if you really want to help support and be a part of this mission then please head on over to patreon slash reptiles and research where you can join and take part in the mission that we're trying to pursue here and with all of that let's bring on dave Locks. so thank you so much for coming on dave i know obviously i know you personally but could you just introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners? Yeah, of course. Um, my name's Dave Lorks. I'm a British herpetologist living in New Zealand, and I'm currently the team leader of Actifirms at Auckland Zoo. So you've obviously gone from being a a private keeper to going to all this sort of this journey up into working into zoological collections. But at the very beginning, what was your introduction to keeping? So um, my, my my dad's a lepidopterist, um, well, an amateur lepidopterist. He's always had a, a avid avid interest in moths and butterflies. And as long as I can remember, I, you know, I, we we ran a moth trap and we submitted to the national moth record, and that was that was kind of very very um, that was a very normal part of my childhood. Um, and my dad used to attend the um, amateur entomological society meetings up at Kempton Park and um he'd go talk to the you know native native moth people and um from a very very young age i was 
fascinated with the exotic invertebrates, you know, tarantula scorpions, um, you know, in particular, really, really caught my eye. And quite, a, quite from a quite quite a young age, I was keeping um, giant African land snails, uh, African giant millipedes, and then I got my first tarantula when I was eight, eight years old, um, and it sort of snowballed from there. And I started keeping reptiles at ten. I got my first ball python, and I got a Brazilian rainbow for um, for my eleventh birthday, and um, that was that was it. I was sort of hooked, and you know, by the time I was a very young teenager, my 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 bedroom looked more like a reptile shop than a bedroom. Yeah, I know what that feels like. <laughs> yeah, much like much like the room you're currently sat in. Yeah, I can imagine. Maybe not the same temperature, or maybe it's at the moment it's 29 degrees in here, so it is spicy at the moment. So back then, then obviously your dad was doing all of that. I'd imagine it didn't take much to convince him to let you have like tarantulas and stuff. No, so <clears throat> I um I think he always had also a bit a bit of background interest and a bit of fascination. So, um, you know, him and him and him and myself up in London for the day, you know, my mum and sister know her in sight. Dad can have a tarantula. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and yeah, it was, uh, it was, it, it, I never had to fight too hard to, um, you know, have the, have the freedom to sort of keep these things at home. I know, I know one of the things I think a lot of people come up against, you know, particularly in their early years with this interest is just get over the line with, you know, their parents to allow them to, you know, keep these animals. I was, I was really, I was really fortunate. My parents were always very open-minded and supportive and, you know, fed my passion and interest rather than try to stifle it. Yeah. hundred percent know what that, that is like, I think a lot of us had to fight like tooth and tooth and claw to get that first one into it. And once you've, uh, once you've got through the door, I think kind of snowballs from there. So yeah, for sure. This is one of the questions that, that I prepared that you said made you feel old, but let me ask it in a different way. So you've been in keeping far longer than than me. So in your opinion, what would you say has changed in those years? So I think I think I think the obvious thing is technology. You know, technology's changed. When um when I when I was first keeping, uh, specialist reptile shops were few and far between. Um, they were predominantly stocking lamps that they were buying from B and Q or home base, um, and selling them as reptile lights. And, uh, and it really, really was a case of trying to make things work. Um, you know, you know, best, best we could, um, you know, te- the, the lighting technology we had was poor. The heating technology we had was between totally inadequate and almost adequate. And in the last 20, 25 years, that's, you know, probably 30 years, you know, even pre my time, it's come along in leaps and bounds. And, you know, you know, the, the, um, technology we have available to us on our fingertips now is, is it's, it's, it's exponentially better. Um, and I, th- I think that's, I think that's one of the really big things that's made, um, herpetoculture, not only more accessible, but, uh, more ethical and, and it's it's easy it's easier to get on board with keeping animals in captivity when you know you're keeping them properly, rather than you know buying something, accepting the fact it's going to slowly die for two years, then replacing it, which um which I think ha- happened a lot in the eighties and nineties. So, back then, when you were first getting into it, did it feel? like at the time it was like oh it's not what i want it to be or at the time was it it was like this is really advanced because it is like the most advanced forms ever ever felt sort of thing did you ever imagine it being uh, where it is now um in my early early years i i didn't really have 
any thoughts or feelings. I was very young. I was 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. I was relying on the information provided to me by the people that I, I assumed at the time were in the know. And I was following their advice and keeping accordingly. Um, I now look back on it and, you know, it, it genuinely makes me cringe, you know, you know, keeping reptiles in fish tanks with modified tops and, you know, you know, it's hideous, hideous husbandry, but that was, that was what I had in, available to me. And, you know, even, even books from that period, you know, you know, talk to, you know, talk about these things like they're absolutely fine. Whereas obviously, you know, we, you know, we're so far past that now it's untrue. Um, it was only when I started getting more serious in my, I guess my mid to late teens, um, that I realized how lacking so much was, you know, I, I wanted to start providing proper nighttime lows, you know, thermal gradients, light gradients. Um, I wanted, I wanted to, you know, be able to strive to replicate what these animals would experience in the wild. And I realized how lacking the technology and equipment that was um, available to me was, and it, it just made all that sort of stuff really challenging. And you, you know, you find yourself with multiple lights, multiple heat sources, um, and you know, multiple thermostats. And for you know, and, and, re and realistically, it was it wasn't it wasn't practical. It, was, it wasn't it wasn't a practical setup. You know, you, you it, it was it was cluttered. It was busy, um, and it, it it just didn't do what we needed it to do. So seeing where we've got to now with with yeah better better technology you know particularly in thermostats and um t5 you know t5 units you know and and with um a better understanding of um of light um i i think it's far more achievable now and you know it's it, it's it's great it's great to see that that is where, where where we've got to and i'm really excited about the next 10 20 years i just hope the hobby stays buoyant enough for these companies to continue investing in the technology because obviously if, if the hobby goes away then no one's going to invest in the technology and it's not going to develop i think a lot of people that i've asked from a perspective that is before i could even experience that uh, it's always felt that way that the hobby might go under the hobby might implode do you think it's a different landscape now or do you think that we are not progressing fast enough um it, it to answer that question i kind of need to separate it out mm -hmm. technology what's available to us and what we can do is moving fast enough the thing that is woefully lacking and you know frankly negligent is people's attitudes i don't know why in 2023 people are still keeping reptiles like they did in the 80s and the 90s and and it's accepted because it shouldn't be it's 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 appalling and we need to we need to you know i say as a hobby we need to get better or we need to accept the fact that we're gonna we're gonna you know can come under increasing scrutiny and, ult and ultimately you know you know lose, lose the things we love you know and that onus is on us you know that onus is on us as keepers you know we you know we need to be better and i don't i don't think a lot of people don't want to hear it and a lot of people don't want to do anything about it but you know i'm, I'm a firm believer in the most the, the most dangerous phrase in the english language is we've always done it this way you know it's absolutely unexcusable and you know we all have we all have accountability we, we all have to own this 
Sorry, at some points I switch, I, sh- I I will shift from conversation to rant, and I apologise. Nope, nope, that's perfect. There'll be little moments like that, and I'm like, that's a YouTube short clip. So that's perfect. Um, some of these attitudes, you referred to like the 80s and 90s, and people's attitudes or keeping style might be the same. Is there anything in mind that you have when you think of that sort of time period that people still do? So particularly, it's people's attitudes towards light, you know, People behave like these huge swathes of reptiles don't don't require UV. It's like, yeah, all right, you can keep it without UV without killing it, but it doesn't mean it's not better off with it. And, you know, people using ceramic heaters to heat reptiles, although we know that we know they can't utilize the heat that comes from them. It's it's meaningless. You know, these these animals cannot utilize it. You know, we we you know, we need to give them heat they can actually use. And people have got such a wild misunderstanding of, you know, I, I don't like the term heating and lighting because heat, heat is light. We just can't see it, you know, as, as you know, as, as you, know, we, we, you know, most of us are aware, but we need to not separate those things out. We need to provide them with what they need and we need to use the equipment that gives them what they need. We don't just go through and tick box, oh, ceramic, ceramic heater, the same height and they're done. Yes, yeah, it's, not, it's not how it works. It's not how husbandry works. It's not how science works. And, um, you know, I I I I went into I actually went into a reptile shop today, and you know, there's ceramic heaters for sale on 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 the on the shelves. There's red bulbs for sale on on the shelves. I'm like, what are they for? <laughs> what are you hoping to achieve with these? Yeah, I mean, I went into a shop yesterday, and I saw tortoises being kept with a ceramic, and I'm just like, that hurts my soul. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh. Obviously, this perspective of how things have changed. My very first snake was obviously um, it was a deep heat projector, which I don't agree with myself now. But it was with T five yep. UV, which is like I'm from an, almost like a period now where I can't have a. I can appreciate what people tell me, but I can't remember it in a and felt like I experienced it in the same way that people were like, "Oh my god, UV is this new thing." Because to me, it's like. Oldest, oldest stone always been there sort of thing yeah one of um one of the things that sort of i look back on it, it tickles me now is you know obviously a long time ago now when i was um keeping and breeding super dwarf reticulate pythons um i kept them all in vivariums not racks and i gave them uv and i remember at the time thinking that i was bleeding edge i'm like i give snakes uv i am on the absolute knife absolute knife's edge of science and uh, you know, and it was, you know, it was, it wasn't bad from a welfare perspective. And I was v- very much one of the only people doing it to the point where I'd have a breeders going, what are you doing that for? And, uh, 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 but you know, it's, it's, it's funny how attitudes shift. And, you know, as we, as, as we learn more, you know, we look back and go, Ugh, that wasn't flash or Ugh, wouldn't want to do that now. But, you know, it's all a learning curve, you know? It's um, growth is important and, rec- and recognizing that what who I am today isn't going to be as good as who I am next year and five years beyond 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 that. That's important because, you know, the moment you stop growing, the moment you think you know it all, the moment you stop trying to actively learn and better yourself, you know, you've lost, you know, you're irrelevant. You know, you're, you're, you're literally irrelevant. So I, th- I think you say that has been back then. It was good for back then. I think that's got an advanced attitude now, even breeding snakes on any sort of like bigger scale than just like playing within your hobby and providing snakes with UV. I think even now, I think I'd be happy to see like commercial 
reading of things, even just including UV and things like that. Even on the small, like, yeah. um, what's what's the term they use? Um, micro breeder or something? It's something like that. Small batch might be small batch, micro batch, something like that. Where it's just like a it person's bedroom. breeding, bedroom breeder, it was a bedroom. <laughs> Greater in my day, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's trying to be fancier now, I suppose. Yeah, micro breeder, small batch breeder, craft breeder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people providing like their breeders with UV would be a big step up even nowadays. So it's interesting how you thought that was like old. We 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 know we know full well that um you you know uv is directly related to the synthesis of vitamin d3 um for the processing of you know processing of calcium in reptiles and you're breeding reptiles that are going under immense physiological stress drawing calcium often from their bones you're just going to support them aren't you you're going to you're going to you're going to create an environment to support that process and um yeah it does it does i mean it's actually really disappointing to hear that that's not been more widely adopted like i mean i'm I'm pretty far removed from it these days i've been um i've been out i've been out the british hobby for seven almost eight years so it's um yeah it's not it's not my world anymore but you know hopefully more people will you know do what they can to do right by these animals and you know support support their bodily functions because the science tells us that's what they need yeah, the science, the science, you know, it's not, it's not open to debate. The science, the science tells us what happens. You know, we, we know, we know what happens. We know what the process is. We, we, we know what they need. You know, it's, you know, there's no, there's no debate to be had. It's just a case of whether or not you do it or not. Point for 2023. Let's go. So you talk about being like further removed now. Um, back in your early career, and I know you mostly from working in shops along the South Coast. How many shops did you yeah. end up working in? Uh, lots. Lots. So, um, at fourteen, I worked in a tiny little reptile shop in Chalmers Ford that did not last very long, called Long Island Reptiles. Um, I think I was there for about eighteen, 18 months, a year, eighteen months. I think that lasted, but it, but it went, it went bust pretty quickly. Um, I then, I then worked at um, the Reptilarium in Bournemouth for, um, for, for a couple of years um, while at university. While I was at university. And then um, I went and got I went and got a proper job after university. I didn't like having a proper job, so I flicked that off. And I went and worked at Grange Reptiles, and um, yeah, you know, helped build and open the big reptile shop that you know that is still standing is that is Grange Reptiles. Then uh, after that, I went to Marwell. I went to Marwell after that. Yeah, and then and then I left Marwell. Then I went to peregrine and i was a peregrine rep for a while which is a dreadful soulless job and then i went to southampton reptile where i was for a couple of years and then i went to the reptile room up in blackpool car that took me that, that was far i had to think far too hard about that sorry still a bit still a bit dusty from travel but yeah then i went to um the reptile room up in blackpool so yeah i've, I've bounced about a bit yeah sort of I seem to do about two year stints and just uh, get 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 at your feet and leave and go to something else. So obviously, you must have met so many different people and so many different ways of doing things. What yeah. do you think that did for you as your development as a keeper and also for your career as well? The best thing about moving on semi regularly 
and having the exposure to the number of people that I had, expo- I had exposure to was being able to take, take a little something from, you know, more or less everyone. Everyone knows something that you don't. Um, everyone does something slightly differently to you. And sometimes the newest, greenest keeper that you're having a conversation with will go, oh, I've actually started doing this because of this. And you know, I find myself going, that's low-key brilliant. Like, that's absolutely outstanding. What an incredible observation. How have I never thought of that? And um, it's having lots of those moments over the years that I feel that I've really been able to hone and polish my own craft and, um, you know, get, 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 get to a point where I'm, you know, pretty, pretty confident in what, what, what it is I do and, um, you know, you know, my knowledge base and, and yeah, and that's, that, that's probably the, that's probably the best, best part of that for me. And also you see a lot of how not to do things. You know, it is absolutely possible to learn from other people's mistakes. And, uh, you know, I'm great, grateful for those opportunities as well. Yeah, I th- I think you're describing as even like these new keepers that might just have some light bulb idea that's like, oh, my God, I'm going to use that now. How important do, do experiences like that um, lean into making you feel about gatekeeping in the Raptor hobby and how people don't really give someone the time of day if they're not really, you know, 20 years in the hobby, 30 years in the hobby. What attitudes do you think that built up in you towards that? I, I, I don't believe I have any aspect of gatekeeping to myself whatsoever. I love talking to people about reptiles and the science around reptile keeping, husbandry, herpetoculture, herpetology, be it, you know, field work, whatever it is. I love talking about it. It's, you know, it is absolutely intrinsically who I am. So I, I, I like talking to people from all walks of life about these things. I mean, naturally, I'll have conversations with people. And I will not enjoy talking to that person based on who they are as an individual. You don't, you don't like everyone just as not everybody likes me and and that's fine. Um, But in terms of, in terms of, you know, gatekeeping or guarding knowledge, I think it's, I think it, you know, it's, it's, it's going to cause irreparable damage to to the industry and, and, you know, the only people that really loses out is the animals. So, you know, why do it? And if there's something I know that can make an animal's life better, why wouldn't I share that information? 100% 100% agree with that. So did you ever see a lot of gatekeeping at the time alongside um, having these moments of having these light bulb moments from these brand new fresh keepers that really made you feel like, yeah, I will never do that, even seeing someone else do it next to you sort of thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, there's always been there's always been um, uh, quite macho attitudes um, with certain areas of reptile keeping in particular. Um, you know, gatekeeping in the venomous community is is rife you know people behave like you know keeping keeping hots is the most difficult thing in the world it isn't you just have a different set of protocols around you know handling restraint and you know feeding and you and you take extra steps to make sure they don't escape but looking after a cobra is no more difficult than looking after a corn snake it's just more dangerous that's interesting because i've never I've, I've i've been around venomous and and dabbled but i've not really been like right this is my thing i'm going to do this now I I know you did a lot of venomous in the past. So has is, is that been one of your passions in the past, venomous? Um, I wouldn't single it out as a passion. I I I am interested in venomous snakes. I have I have passion for venomous snakes. Um, some taxonomic groups more than others. Um, I I enjoyed keeping venomous. Um, uh, you know, I found certain aspects of it really really rewarding. Um, and I think the ability to learn how to deal with 
legislation, um, uh, respon- you know, responsible keeping of um, something that didn't just pose a threat to your well-being, but potentially the the well-being of others around you. That was um, that was that was that was it was it was important learning for me, and um, I think it really really helps mold my mindset so that when I stepped into the zoo world, I already had a lot of these things. I already had a lot of these skills. I had a lot of I had a lot of understanding around some of this stuff, and um, it yeah definitely it definitely helped it definitely helped you know mature me and sort of um, you know, sort of temper me as a keeper. But but yeah, I mean keep, keep, keeping keeping venomous is not the be all and end all, and it absolutely isn't for everyone, and, and and nor should it be, you know, nor should it be. So you talk about maturing and things tempering you. Were there any like really like key notable moments when you're working in these shops that you felt were like massive turning points for your de- development as a keeper? Any sort of like defining moments that stuck with you? Um, yeah, there's there's a couple of things that spring to mind. I took a couple. I took a couple of bites that I shouldn't have taken um, off of either monitor lizards or, 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 or large snakes where I was, I was going in overconfident and I should have, again, I should have, I should have read the animal's behavior. I should have been cooler, calmer, and more collect. Um, and there was, there was a tough, I've, 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 I've had the misfortune of being whacked by, you know, some relatively large reptiles a couple, a couple of times now. And, it, you know, it was avoidable. It was so avoidable. And, it, it it really really helps um, sort of recalibrate my mindset and made me realise that working in a way that is not only safer for me is also safer for the snake or safer for the lizard. And if we can if we can um, achieve our outcomes either with very gentle persuasive handling or even better training, um, then that's there's there's worlds to be said for that. You know one of the one of the things that i find interest being in the part of the world i am now is a lot of the attitudes around me towards crocodilians are, are still all about jumping on them and i'm like well let's ask my alligator to go into a box and she does you know why why jump on her why stress her out why 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 jaw rope her if i can literally ask her to go and step into a crate we close it up we take her to the vets we do what needs to be done then we release her you know the animal the animal has an exponentially better experience there's no risk to keepers, you know, everyone comes out of it better. Yeah, training is something that has really been for the last couple of years been something that I've been really, really into. This everything I've got now, apart from the bull python that I've just taken on, is to some degree target trained. Now I've been yeah. able to get things to shift to and from places. And from a hobby perspective, people are like, you can't train a snake, that, that they're not intelligent enough. That's impossible. That's not a thing. But from a zoo perspective, Rubbish. it's like, of course you can train a snake. Train near enough anything if you if you have the perseverance and you can find the right motivator. Yeah, I completely yes. agree with that. Yeah, you need to you need to find out what motivates it. And then you just apply the basic principles of opera conditioning and you know with the right perseverance and understanding motivators you can you can train most things i mean some things will take a long time to train some things it will be so slow and difficult it possibly isn't worth doing but you can you can train most things yeah so going back to obviously the shops still i'm still focusing on the shops here i obviously worked in a few shops now and you know that you get to work with a lot of species and fast succession do you feel like that aided you in growing as a keeper as well this just mass exposure to a lot at once 
it i feel rather than rather than helping my keeping abilities it just helped my base knowledge like i was becoming aware of species every time a new species would come in i'd make sure i knew common name scientific name where it came from what it's distributed yeah what, what its distribution was and a few key bits of information about it so that i was able to successfully sell it and make sure that i could responsibly and ethically sell it but um but i would seek seek information from elsewhere and try and basically do a lightweight setup because i knew the animal was only going to be there effectively in transit you know it was going to be in in my care for a short period of time before it left and i wasn't able to meaningfully deep dive any of the husbandry of any of the species that were being kept in a shop because I wasn't about to start building hibernaculums for species that hibernate. I wasn't about to start, you know, fully rewiring the enclosures to to you know meet the specific needs of that that specific species. It had to be it had to be quite generalist, and you know you you almost could sort of chalk it up to like one of five settings, you know, cold, temperate, you know, you know, hot, humid, cold, humid, and you you, you sort of knew where it was going to slot into. You try and put it in a bank with other species that it was going to best work, but there was no there was no there was no deep diving husbandry. It was all very, it was all very, very much sort of like triage. I got really good at setting up vivariums though. Yeah. It's almost as if like you're just skimming over the surface, like a stone skipping the water almost. Yeah. It's a really good analogy. That's a really good analogy. So along those lines then, was there any species that you really enjoyed working with that you wish you just got that little bit more time to really flesh out some experience with? I mean, there's always something there's so little time and there's so many species um i kept i, I mean I, I don't know if you know but I, I kept pretty intensively at home as well you know i'd go to work for eight hours and look after reptiles and i'd come home and look after reptiles for two to four hours in my evenings and then normally two full eight hour days you know maintaining my own collection you know on, on my days off you know at, at one point i had i had friends i had friends kind of working for me paying paying off snakes that i'd given them you know it was it was pre pretty full-on um so I, i've been pretty fortunate that the majority of things that i've really really wanted to keep really wanted to stuck my teeth it get my teeth stuck into i've been able to there's a handful of species that um are not available um either legally or um or full stop that i you know that i would have loved to have kept and i'd you know to this day i'd love to work with um but but you know there, there, there's always going to be limitations and you you know you have to you have to you know accept the fact that you know not not ev not everything's here to be kept in captivity so let's go into what you kept because I, I i knew you had a big collection i didn't realize it was as big as you're describing here so could you give me like a from your brain's memory a list of things that you've you've kept in the past so how long we got <laughs> um uh, I think the, the sort of key notable ones would be um, uh, crocodile monitors, uh, uh, yellow tree monitors. Um, yeah, bunch of bunch of bunch of Australian dwarf monitors. I was uh, I went for a, went for a real stage of those um, at at one point. Um, uh, Bowlands pythons. Um, a few a few of the a few of a few of us. Uh, Somalia, they're Somalia now. They're not Morelia anymore. Yeah, a few other Somalia species. Um, Clastolepis. Um, uh, yeah, Clastolepis were a particular favourite. Amethystina. Yeah, a few, a few, a few of those um, sort of Indonesian scrubs, which are real, real passion for a while. 
lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of green tree, green tree pythons. I had a real green tree python problem for a while. I, I think I probably single-handedly kept uh, Crystal Palace afloat with my green tree python purchases from them for a quite a while, which um which was uh, which was awesome. They're all the, those guys are always really good to me. Um, I kept some locality super dwarf retics. Uh, I kept more super dwarf retics, but that was more to fund my fund my um, uh, reptile re reptile edition and uh, help pay the electricity bills. Um, what else I keep? Um, ah, Chinese alligator. I uh, had the Chinese alligator. Kept a you know, wide wide variety of venomous snakes, everything from um, Western green manders, king cobras, saw scale vipers, a few species of rattlesnake. Um, I had a, I had leucistic monocle cobras for a while. That's the only only more only more venomous I ever kept. And uh, some some of the photos of um, those went 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 viral, and I was forever seeing them everywhere. Um, yeah, Buzzfeed latched onto them. Uh, rare, rare albino cobras, um, which was particularly funny. But yeah, um, pancake tortoises, uh, abronia, um, all, all, all sorts of. Uh, I've kept I've kept a lot over the years. I've kept a lot a lot. Yeah, there's a there's not a great deal that I've wanted to keep that I that I haven't. For, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, that is quite a highlight reel. That is, I think a lot of those species are some people's end goals, and you're like, yeah, I've, I've done that. So you've you've kept yeah. a lot a lot of things then. Yeah, absolutely. There was there was there was a really cool point in time where I had a I had a Chinese alligator, a couple of bolans, and they um and uh and a, a crocodile monitor. And at that point, at that point in my keeping life, I was like, yeah, I'm kind of done. This this is it, you know. What what, what do you keep now? You know, uh, you know, if because if, if I could keep a komodo, I wouldn't. It's not practical. You know, if I could keep a galap, I wouldn't. It's not practical. You know, I'm never gonna I'm never gonna be able to afford to spend a million a million pound on the on the house on the housing it requires so you know i was never going to keep a good lap but yeah i was um very very fortunate yeah very intense but i can imagine that was really fulfilling like croc monitors are incredible oh they're the best i'll take a salvador over, over over a komodo any day i absolutely love salvador if um if there was one thing i would if there was one thing i have to do before i die it's see a wild salvador that would be very cool. So obviously you're keeping all of this and you have this, this wide range of experiences as well as working in the shops as well. Did you come up with any sort of like techniques for educating customers that you developed over the years? Um, I mean, it's sort of the same thing as what I said earlier, really. I mean, um, having so many different conversations with so many people and, you know, working alongside so many people, you know, some of them, some of them really, really good at what they do. Um, I, just picked up bits and bobs from others you know from other people but you know so, so, science communication isn't easy science communication is um is you know it's a, there's a real art to it and i got better i got better i got better i got better at it as we went along but i think i think the if i had one if i had one piece of advice to give to somebody that was you know, in that position trying trying to trying to um um you know have these conversations it would be to try and make your content relatable. Don't talk about UVA, UVB, IRA, uh, IRB, IRC. Most people, you're going to lose most people. They're going to they're going to go, oh oh yeah, oh yep 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 yep. You know, talk 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 about it in terms they understand. Go this lamb here gives the same as the sun, which is what this animal needs. This one gives less of it. This one gives a better balance of it. But this is the one. You know, in terms of from the sun. For this product, this is this is this is it. 
you know, everyone gets that, you know, everyone understands that providing heating and lighting is all about replicating the sun. Just tell them this is the one that best replicates the sun. And if they want a deeper explanation, then you can go into it. But for most people, that's enough. Because if you just go, oh, you know, if, if, if you if you bore them with the details, they're not really going to understand. And they go, oh, I'll take the ceramic because that's what I've always had. I, I trust ceramics. They last a long time. Yep, but we know we know it's not right, and um, and that's the way, and that you know that that that's the way I always I always I always try to operate that, and um, never ever make anyone feel stupid. Never ever ever make anyone feel stupid. You know, if someone gets something wrong, um, by all means correct them, but just be really really careful with your mannerism. Be be really con- con- you know considerate in how you are going to challenge that viewpoint, and um, and yeah, you know, I, I've I've been I've been in shops when someone said something that's you know pr- pretty outlandish and. Th- they've been mocked that person's been made to feel stupid that person's been made to feel unwelcome and that person's likely to double down on what they're doing and you know almost put up a barrier to further advice and that doesn't benefit anyone very solid advice i think the the initial reason that i even started this youtube channel is because i was just I, re- I got into realizing that for some people, this is very complex and stuff. So I would like to make a video for each time someone that asked me something more detailed, especially online as well. I could like, here's the link. You can rewatch this over and over and over again. Um, and it made things yeah. easier for me. And then it became its own, its own beast. And now it's just my entire thing. Yeah. But initially it started like trying to make supplemental material to make that life easier for people. I yeah. think that, it's difficult because some people I've had sometimes where you say it that way and then they're like, cool. If you go into science, you, I find sometimes you can get someone to understand why they want to do something rather than why you've told them to, because they go, Oh, I understand now. Oh, I actually want to do that. But then some people do the reverse, like you say, and they're like, and don't want to know. So yeah, it's all about delivery. And, and, and also, picking picking your audience if you've got if you've got you know somebody who just wants to get their first beardy you know isn't interested in the technical stuff whatsoever you're gonna you're gonna pitch why you're giving them this stuff very very differently to somebody who's maybe like a last year zoology student they want to keep a particular species so that they can you know correlate captive observations to wild ones you go hard on the science you know let them know but yeah you know it's um it's a uh, you know it's sort of knowing your audience it's kind of like you know if, if ever if ever i'm you know presenting or, or doing any public speaking i always make sure i always make sure i know who i'm pitching it to because you know how i'm going to pitch to you know colleague you know colleagues at another zoo versus a bunch of um bunch of you know, year 11 year 11 school kids it's very very different yeah i think it's just it's also a skill set in yourself trying to become more adaptable. And what I found early on is that I struggled to leave the science out of it because I felt like I didn't give everything that I had up here. But I think over time you learn to let that go as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, not everyone needs to speak exclusively in scientific names. That's not right for some situations. Others, it's absolutely right. You know, it's how, how it goes. But yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Do you find there's a difference between someone who's just going to be a pet keeper with like, oh, I want a bit of dragons, a family pet, versus someone who's a hobbyist who wants to fill an entire room? And do you think you can tell that by gauging sometimes? Yeah, I mean, I think 
I think you never know who someone's going to become. There are, you know, there are absolutely times where someone's come in to get a pet and they've gone, Oh, this is for me. And then within, you know, within you know, a year, 18 months, two years, they've got a lot of reptiles and, you, you know, they're coming in and like, Oh, I want to get one of these. And I'm like, slow down. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But, but, but equally, you know, some people, some people, you know, think, think, you know, reptile keeping is going to be for them. They get a snake and go, oh, this isn't actually me. I think it's really boring. Do they not do anything? Nope. Not really. <laughs> Yeah, some people are like that as well. So you talked about like reptile shops always being like triage. How do you feel about bioactives in a reptile shop? How do I feel about bioactives in a reptile shop? Um, depends on the shop. Depends on the shop. I mean, how many shops have got decent quarantine facilities? It's not many just they just chuck stuff in so in if you had a proper quarantine facility i'd be i'd be all about it but as and when you're rotating animals through i think non-bioactive and cleaning and hygiene and keeping in more sterile almost hospitally triage setups substrate furnishings equipment is 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 probably better unless it's unless it's like a long long term resident. Um, I'm, I'm I'm very very pro bioactive. You know I I, I I wish more people and places would do it. I'm 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 not convinced a reptile shop's necessarily the right place for it. And you know unless of course they have a decent quarantine protocol. But my guess is that there are not any reptile shops that are sitting on reptiles in a separate facility for thirty days, screening them while they while joining the main collection in the shop so moving on from shops then obviously you said you moved to to marwell you made this big step up for, um from a shop to a zoo environment did it feel like a big step up or do you feel like you walked straight into it and you were quite comfortable um i was i'll, I'll, I'll be honest i was pretty comfortable in the space um I was working with species I'd worked with previously, um, just on a larger scale. Um, the intensity of the style of keeping was reduced, so I was able to spend more time focusing on individuals rather than so you know so so much of what I did was managing a collection, um, you know, privately and at zoos. Sorry, privately and at home, where um, privately and in shops. Sorry, can't go there in the end. Um, but when I went to a zoo. Every, everything was an individual you had an opportunity to manage things as individuals and that was that was that was that was nice to have that bit of breathing space and you know to really observe your animals and um you know understand the sort of you know the seasonal shifts they were going going through so i um i really enjoyed stepping into the zoo space and um yeah I, it, it felt it felt very comfortable you know at, at that time it, it wasn't something like it wasn't you know it's not something i'd say i found uh, daunting or stressful Obviously, being able to observe and like focus on the individual. Did you feel this sort of like moment where you were like, "Oh yeah, they like." It sounds daft because I think everyone knows that animals have individual personalities. But I think you go, having experienced it all myself, just up until recently, you go into a shop environment, and I think that you focus so hard on like, right, water, you're just going through, and then you're like go into a situation where you can focus on the individual you're like oh yeah they do have individual personalities oh yeah i can just watch what it does now i can cater it to this and that it's i think it takes you back and you're like oh yeah 
I can't describe. I can't yeah, describe I, what I'm trying to get at, but I think you no, understand. No, no, I, I, I absolutely understand. So, um, with my private collection over over a sort of 10, 10 year period, I sort of I I, I sort of I'd uh, shrink it, shrink sort of shrink and shrink and expand, and I would go. I've, I've got too much. I'm literally just looking after these things. I'm not enjoying them in any way, shape, or form. So I'd shrink my collection, and then it'd be super manageable. And I'd enjoy everything, and I'd be making observations, and I'd be, I'd be, you know, getting really good results, and I'd be like, "Oh, this is great." I was like, "I've got, I've got time to take on a couple of pairs of these. Yeah, I could take on some of these, and then grow and grow and grow, and then you know, something, you know, something would take my fancy, and I'd give it a go, and I had the space, and um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd end up sort of expanding to the point where I'm like, "Oh, I'm, I'm just doing it nonstop again. It's, you know, it's, it's all consuming," and then, I, then I'd shrink. Okay. Sorry. So, so, um, so yeah, you know, I'd, I'd realized that my collections were constantly growing and shrinking and I would, you know, I'd get to this point where I'd decide that it was no longer manageable and I wasn't enjoying it anymore and I'd shrink right down, but it was always too easy to increase again after I'd shrunk. Um, but I was always, I was always happy when I was doing, I was always happier when I was doing less. Um, because when you've got a big collection, one of two things is going to suffer the animal welfare or the keeper's welfare. And um, for me personally, it was, it was, it was always keeper welfare. I didn't, I didn't have a life outside of my animals, particularly, I, you know, it's, it's what I did all the time, you know, you know, you know just running myself ragged. And um, it wasn't actually sustainable. It was only because I was young and energetic that I think. I yeah. Um, I think a lot of us um, go through it of, uh, I've heard that, that story over and over and over again of people like, building up cutting down building up cutting down my friend came on my podcast and he described the same thing of like he would have these huge collections and cut down and do the same thing and now he's up to stage where he's got a lot of monitors he's up i think he's up at that peak and now he's talking about cutting down again so it happens time and time again why is it you think that we do that uh because we're all addicts we're, we're all we're all totally and utterly those of us that get to this point, we're absolutely fanatical about what we do and giving over our lives to these animals that intrigue us, that we love, that you know, that are our, our reason for being. It's, it's really easy to do. It's a, it's a price none of us seem to mind paying, particularly in the moment. And it's only when you start, you know, dealing with the long-term effects of it, you go, oh, okay, all right, something's got to give here. You know, something's got to give here. You know, I, I'm aware of the fact I've I've sacrificed personal relationships um, because, or I've damaged, I've done I've done damage to personal relationships because you know my my animals came first, and the amount of time and energy I put into those animals meant that I wasn't putting time and energy into other things that you know I probably should have been putting time and energy into. I did it. Hindsight I did exactly 20. that. Yeah, I did that as well. Yeah. Hindsight, exactly. So. Yeah. When you moved, obviously you moved into these zoos, um, and you were used to the animals, and you were getting more time with them as individuals. Did you notice any sort of attitude shifts from like the environment of a zoo compared to herpetoculture? Did you notice any attitudes towards herpetoculture, private herpetoculture, that you felt were quite different? The attitude in zoos, as I've experienced it um towards herpetoculture is a bit of a mixed bag um i've met everything from zookeepers that think private herpetoculture should be outright banned and they don't believe in it in the slightest and you know these you know the, 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 these these people shouldn't be keeping these animals through to 
you know, there's there's zookeepers that you know I'm sure I'm sure we all know that are um that are as you know deep into herpt culture you know as they are as they are the zoo world you know they sort of have one leg in both camps which is very much what i was when i was at marwell that's 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 very much that's very much who i who i was when i was at marwell although not not so much in new zealand as i as i, I don't i don't keep anything privately anymore oh wow um we'll, we'll get to that because i find that interesting as well again like i said about the shops was there any memorable moments for you from your time at marwell that you felt like a big change in the way that you view keeping of reptiles i think the interesting thing for me was seeing relatively common species or or you know well your common yeah well-kept species that um you know i'd spent the last how many years telling people did just fine in a two by two by four viv living in sort of 16 foot you know by eight foot by 10 foot enclosures utilizing all the space utilizing you know everything we gave them and going oh i'm not sure i'm not too sure these minimum standards we roll out in the shops are actually anywhere near near adequate you know it's the size it's the size you can keep it in without it you know until it you know without it dying and again you know that's a very 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 low bar not killing something is a low bar yeah, I mean, I I think the same when I go to a a zoo. The thing that I like the most is seeing species that I'm familiar but kept like crazy well. So like, I always want to see some like bearded dragon enclosure that's like gargantuan, or like there's one at crocodiles of the world where they have like green tree pythons, but this huge like ten foot like floor ceiling thing, and to see them active and moving and changing position, like it's just crazy compared to like these two by two by two. Uh, by two enclosures some people keep them in yeah yeah yeah. oh yeah green 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 tree pythons are often sold as you know oh they don't do anything they just saddle perch and feed rubbish absolute rubbish the majority of um the majority of what we do with green tree pythons in captivity particularly particularly when i when i um when i was doing it and just before i left um based based on sort of you know wild, wild wild observations from friends is it's so wrong it's so wrong you know it, it kind of works but it's it's not how they live i think that's probably the most the case for most species that we keep as well absolutely absolutely so what made you go from obviously like a zoo environment back to shops again um i was at marwell at quite a turbulent time um in its in it in its existence um they were undergoing quite a major restructure the reptile and invertebrate team was very very small and um you know very very overlooked it was it was it was nobody's priority um and uh, there was a you know dedicated passionate team of um of um you know ectopherm keepers there at the time and I, I just don't think any of us any of us particularly felt like the collection was heading in 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 the direction we wanted it to go in there was immense there was an immense amount of red tape and it was difficult to make any meaningful husbandry changes particularly as just an entry level keeper which which is which is what I which is what I was taking on as um so that was that was that was that was really challenging you know having to ask permission to change a light bulb is exhausting and um i I stand by the fact that there was there was real challenges in the organisation which I struggled with, but equally, you know, I, I definitely lacked, lacked a little bit of maturity to um, approach situations with 
uh, a calmer, more level head. And um, yeah, I am. Um, I, 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 I just don't. I just don't think Marwell was in the right place at, the, at you know at that time in its history. And I and I and I and I wasn't in the right place for it. So I went. I went back to sort of what I what I knew, which at that at that time. So you went from experiencing them in these big enclosures and all of this, and you went back to the shops. How did this change how you you educated or your perspectives, what you thought about minimum standards and things like that? How did that change how you operated as someone working in a shop after all of that? Uh, I, I so I introduced. Um... I can't remember what it called. I think it was Pro. I introduced uh, Pro packages for um for the housing and keeping of of you know lots and lots of commonly kept reptile species, and you know uh, we sold the bare minimum because we had to. We, we we had to sell the bare minimum because that was somebody's price point, and if they didn't buy it from wherever I was working, they would buy it elsewhere. Um, which potentially is um a slightly slightly topsy turvy attitude to have looking back on it. But it was, you know, it, it wasn't, I didn't own the shop. I just worked there. So had I, um, had I wiped out, you know, all beardy sales because I was 150 pound more expensive than the competition, I don't think I'd have been very, I wanted to give people the opportunity to have a package, which was the best possible husbandry for their, for their animal. And, um, they were, they were, they were, they were quite popular because if you, if you tell somebody that this is, this is how they do best by their, by their animal, by their you know, particularly by their pet, you know, when people are buying a beardy as a pet, they'll quite often do it because, you know, no, no, nobody, nobody wants, nobody wants to think that their animal is not, not having a good time, you know, is, is receiving less than. I think recently, obviously I've experienced it more recently is quite often you'll get some people who you walk around and be like, you can do this, this, and this, and this, and some of the walk around and be like, okay, okay, okay. And you can get to like, well over 500 pounds set, uh, setups for like a bearded dragon and you know that a bearded dragon's walking away and it's going to have such a good life so i i think that some people are just willing to spend anything which is brilliant yeah i i remember i had a chap come into um uh one of the shops once wanting a emerald tree monitor and i was like this is what you can keep it in this is what you should keep it in this is what i would keep it in this is gold standard and yeah you know, he almost looked to me like he was an idiot like like an, in it like as an idiot he's like why are you telling me anything that isn't gold standard you know come on man you know when we're not here to mess about hook me up and um you know you name it he he he, he bought it and um you know there, there was a point where i, I said I, I recommended getting a miss king i was like look i'd get a miss king so um, yeah i wanted to recommend a miss king to this customer and so i was really honest and transparent about the fact that it would make his life easier the animal probably would benefit from it for you know the reasons you know um but i was also really honest about the fact that it was in no way shape or form a necessity and um just that sort of honesty and transparency around what this product was what it meant for him but you know knowing that he didn't have to buy it you know he was like no have one awesome great thanks and um he even said it was the fact that i didn't try and sell it to him i i i, I floated it I, I gave him I gave him the benefits and that was that was good enough and he was like yeah sounds great I'll have that whereas um had I had I been like oh yeah you really need this mate he um he may have pushed back on it yeah I I think often that is the way that a lot of people do spend more I I honestly don't like lying so especially when if someone is going to spend money on getting a setup and I think that's probably the best policy 
trans, tra- tra- transparency and credibility are, are you know you 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 have to be you have to be honest transparent and cred- and credible um when doing any of this stuff otherwise otherwise you won't be around for long wise words so you moved from the uk to new zealand what made you move to new zealand um new zealand made me move to new zealand um it is a glorious country uh the size of the uk with a with less people in it than there are in london all things that very much appealed to me um <laughs> i um I've always, I've always, I've always really enjoyed um, the outdoors. I've always enjoyed sort of um, hiking, mountain biking, um, all that sort of stuff. And um, there's nowhere better in it, nowhere better on earth for it than New Zealand. It's um, small, small population, lots of space, lots of greenery, lots of wild places, lots of incredible reptiles. Um, a cheap and cheerful holiday day for me is now the Blue Mountain Mountains in um, in Australia, which is it's pretty good. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that over Magaluf any day. Um, yeah. So yeah I mean, there was a lot of lifestyle um, drivers for my move to New Zealand, but I also had the opportunity to go and be a team leader at Wellington Zoo, who had an interesting collection, a couple of a couple of field programs, um, and I was just I was I was, I was, I was I'd managed shops, so I'd, I'd worked in management. I'd worked in sort of people leadership, and I'd had quite a lot of experience there. I'd worked in zoos, so I had so I had so I had a bit of zoo background, um, and I was just ready to go marry those two things and you know lead a team in a zoo, have um have a bit more bit more um say and influence as to the, you know how 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 it was all run and done, and um I was I was just, I was just ready, and I was ready to stop keeping privately as well. You know I kept. So I'm, it became such a huge part of who I was. Um, I was ready to let that go. And um, that was that was massively freeing. That was massively, massively freeing. I think I've heard that a few times as well, where people have gone into like work with zoos or they became they were doing that dual setup of like working with them professionally and then keeping at home. And eventually most people stop keeping at home. Yeah. Do you yeah. think it kills your love love for your private hobby by working in like as a, as a job as well? No, it never killed my love. It never killed my love or passion. But my um, my priorities changed. I I I mean, I, I had to sell my entire collection to move to New Zealand. So all the animals had to go anyway. I so I stopped keeping. I moved to New Zealand. I start this new job, and for the first time in oh, twenty years, I don't have animals that I'm responsible for privately. And all of a sudden, a friend goes, "Do you want to go south to look for penguins for a couple of days on the weekend?" And I go, "Oh, okay, yeah, cool. I don't need to clean snakes, or..." Or, or 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 any of those kind of things, and so, so there were so many opportunities I turned down, didn't didn't take up, and um and you know there's so many things I missed out on because I had I had animals that always always required my attention, and I I had this I had this eureka moment um quite quite early on to my move to New Zealand where I was like I can I can I can do anything I want I'm totally free I can I can literally do whatever I want I can I can go away for months at a time. And I don't have to bat an eyelid, and um, 
that was massively liberating. And uh, I think I think the other thing that really really um, helped helped my transition helped helped me wean wean me off my addiction was the fact that New Zealand has some outstanding field herping. So as and when I want to enjoy reptiles, I can whack on a head torch. I can go out go out to you know one of one of one of my locations, and I can go and enjoy reptiles in the wild, doing what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to do it. Um, you know, in their full glory, and there's you know the the pleasure i i you know the pleasure and the um endorphins i get from finding particularly a new species in the wild for the first time there is nothing there's nothing that has ever come close to that um in the in, in the whole time i was keep keeping and breeding reptiles you know that's 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 you know the gold standard for me you know that's uh that, that that's where it's at They've got quite iconic species over there. So we'll go into the field herping because that sounds amazing. But what species do you work with? Uh, natives or exotics? Or both? Uh, both. Let's go for both. Um, so we've got a relatively small but interesting exotic collection. Uh, just one a uh, yellow lips um, uh, sea crate. Uh, yeah, uh, Lackey Quarter Co uh, Colubrina, um, who's awesome and very, very enjoyable. So yeah, she 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 is the only snake that I've worked with in the last seven 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 years, which is a uh, pretty pretty funny considering I was predominantly a snake guy when I was um, back in the UK. Uh, we've got a pair of um, uh, Sundagario, yeah, Temestima shigelli, who are absolutely awesome. They're two girls, about three and a half meters. That I thoroughly thoroughly enjoy. Um, we have a couple of couple of American alligator. We've got a uh, herd of um, breeding Galapagos giant tortoises, who are again, again real firm firm favourite. We've got a uh, got a large group of lace monitors who who, who are good. We enjoy the lace monitors, and then we've got we've got a bunch of smaller smaller Australian lizards. Um, then yeah, a few few few. Uh, we got we got bell frogs and. Uh, exotic invertebrates nothing nothing nothing, nothing to out there um yeah the exotic side of the collection is it's quite small in terms of numbers but they're large 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 species that require quite a lot of management so in terms of native what we got lots lots and <laughs> lots and lots um we've got three four species of green gecko gold striped geckos um we've got Duvacel's gecko, which is the largest species of gecko in New Zealand, about the same size as a toke, um, uh, brown, brown or green eyes. We've got, um, come way through it. We've got we've got loads and loads of native skink species: grand skinks, Otago skinks, um, cobble skinks, Capatia skink, um, phallus skink, um, chevron skink. Yeah, lots, lots and lots and lots. Um, and yeah, we are tuatara. Obviously, we got got plenty of tuatara. Who are who are probably probably my favourite native reptile. Probably they're pretty they're pretty spectacular. They're um they're one of those things that you, you yeah it's hard to get it until you until you've seen one until until you've had one in your hand and you you know and you really looked at it. It's hard to get it, but they are they are incredible. You know they are so unlizard like it's unreal. You know other than the fact they're you know a quadrupedal reptile. Um. We do. We yeah. We have um. We have Wetapunga. We have um. Archie's frog. 
um yeah we do we do a lot yeah we do a lot we got um bunch of a bunch of native fish oh we've got a bunch of exotic fish as well actually yeah we've got a big big arowana tank and a few other bits and bobs but yeah it's quite it's quite a large collection i assume some of the allure would be a lot of that is not available outside of new zealand as well oh uh, yeah so um one of one of the um one of the things i found really interesting going to new zealand is that um a lot of a lot of people keep interested in exotics and there's a lot of sort of buzz around the exotics i'm like no, no, that that's that's not what I'm here for. I'm here, I'm here for your little green geckos. I'm here for your tuatara. That's that's uh, that that's what I'm about. And um, yeah, working working with the uh, New Zealand native reptiles has been amazing. Like y- y- it, it's hard to fathom looking for geckos at night with a head torch when they're from the ground and finding them active. Like that's a lot to process as somebody that's only worked with exotic and sort of um, you know warm region reptiles their entire life. The idea of the idea of one of my reptiles, you know, when I when I was in the UK going to like eight degrees would have terrified me. You know, you know the reptiles in New Zealand. I'm like eight degrees. They're not going to breed. They need to be colder. Need to be colder. We need to get them down. It's a funny dynamic, that isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. I saw some green geckos for sale in the, in the UK recently. Yeah, they're uh, they're pretty cool. I don't know what. Yeah, uh, is it because it's like the first ones imported were legal before it changed or something? Yeah. So back in the eighties, a I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure a pair of grey eye, a pair of elegans, and a pair of granulatus were, oh, and and I think a pair of um. Maculata actually as well were legally exported to Germany, um, and basically that one import has opened the floodgates, and people are hiding um, smuggled animals um, at, 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 under under the guise that they've all been bred from you know one of those original pairs, you know, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, it was grey eye um, that I saw. They are, I've never seen them before and I was like wow that is an impressive gecko grey eye are amazing they get big as well big gecko yeah big solid chunky gecko and um, for, fortunately there's um, a few sites where they're really abundant you know a good, a good night you know a good night a couple of hours herping you can find 11, 12 I bet that's incredible so when you go, go at herping do you have you say you have spots is that for different species that you've like are trying to fine tune into finding yep 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 so um um i know i know i know i know all the distributions of the animals i'm looking for i know habitat preference um and uh i i either i'm either targeting places where i know they've been seen historically or places where i think they should be and um and yeah norm- normally normally you're um normally you you, you know you, you you can get you can get a result normally you can get a result in tuatara in the wild that must be pretty cool yeah tuatara in the wild are awesome yeah yep yeah, um i um i i got a horrible grainy phone picture of my first wild tuatara that didn't me but um yeah my first wild tuatara was a pretty special animal Big male as well, big big chunky male. Yeah, it was great. You've uh, 
yeah, if uh, if ever in New Zealand, mate, I'll take you to see a wild tuatara. That that would be a life milestone. That would be. So, what is it like working with tuatara? Then I can't even comprehend what it must be like. Yeah, that they're really interesting animals. They're really they're they're really really subtle. Um, it it would be really easy to think that tuatara don't do anything and they're just they're quite they're quite switched off because it's shut it's subtle shifts it's small tells it you know it's it, it, it's it's almost the, it's almost like the unsaid things that that, that that you know what's up with them and um i found i found that you know working with tuatara i've, I've really really had to you know dial into not only the not only animal and the species but but the individuals as well but um, yeah, I um, I mean, I've I've been working with Tuatara a, a lot for the last seven years, and I, um, there is uh, not a single part of me that is bored of Tuatara. You know, I love Tuatara. I think they're great. Um, you know, seeing them in the wild, working with them in in the zoo, bring them in the wild, um, do it get you know going on a release. You know, actually, you know, getting to release some of the animals that we've you know we've been working with back to the wild. That's 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 gold standard stuff in my opinion. Yeah, it doesn't Sounds get much better than that. Very fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the subtleties, what is it? They just kind of like squint and look at you a little bit or what, what um, are the things that... It's, it's, you know, not noticing them basking when they'd normally be basking. It's... Um, it's uh, the, you know the way they may be holding themselves it's it's uh, not 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 noticing that they've um you know you know so s- certain individuals will like every single night they'll 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 foul their water bowl they'll drag themselves through it um you know and if that's not happening you know maybe something's off maybe they just weren't active that night you know uh the digging or not digging of test of test burrows you know the slightest slightest sort of shifts shifts in the females um uh sort of bo- you know, body shape you know when approaching uh of, of ovulation it's yeah it's um it's it's yeah it's it, it's 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 quite hard to articulate what i'm what i'm trying to say but you know, a snake ovulates and it blows up. It looks like it's swallowed a football, but with um, with um, with totes, it's all it's all far more sort of nuanced. What are some major differences that you have found between what it's like to work with those versus lizards? Is there anything anything there that's like wow that sets them apart, other than what they look like? Um, there's such there's such diversity and variation in lizards it's it's sort of hard to separate it out because there are lizards that that they're very very crocodilian in their care there's lizards that are very very sort of chelonian in their care so i i I wouldn't i wouldn't it'd be hard to pin down sort of like oh this is really not lizardy but the fact they're happiest at 16 degrees 16 degrees is a happy place you know that that's when they're most active that's when that's as optimal they're they're still active at three or four degrees you know that's that's you know that's absolutely acceptable temperature for a tuatara to be feeding and doing stuff and um those those things are weird that's i mean that's really weird um the fact that they their metabolism just runs so much cooler and they lay eggs you know that they, they they are a they are a you know temperate cold adapted egg laying reptile whereas just about every other other reptile that's um cold adapted it's, it's it, you know re- realistically it's a it, it's 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 a live bearer you know you know new zealand new zealand's got two species of reptile that lay eggs the egg laying skink sufficiently weird enough to be named the egg laying skink and tuatara 
And there's a hundred and twenty-three, hundred and twenty-four species of reptile in New Zealand. Quite a lot, then. Yeah, yeah, and, and the rest are live bearers. Everything else is a live bearer. So when it comes to incubation, then, do their their eggs incubate at a much lower temperature as well? Yep, yep, yep. And they've also got um, uh, temperature sex determination, so uh, warm warm as boys, cold as girls. What are the boundaries for temperatures for those then? Oh, you, I'd have to I'd have to double check it. Otherwise, I'd be pulling numbers out of the air, and uh, I wouldn't do that to your podcast, mate. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, the green geckos, obviously, are they very, very, very cool in, in terms of like the, the way that their eggs are or, or incubation things like that? Uh, live bearers. Live bearers. They are, aren't they? Yeah, you just said yeah. So um, yeah, they have uh, two offspring once a one, once once a year, um, and uh, different reporters report different things, but it looks like they'll have two seasons on, one season off ish. But there's obviously variation dependent on location, species, blah 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 blah. But yeah, that's um that's kind of the rule rule of thumb for um for for almost almost all of New Zealand geckos. But yeah, they're um oh they're absolutely spectacular. They're um in, in, in my opinion, effortlessly some of the best geckos in the world. They're like everything that's awesome about a gecko combined with everything that's awesome about a banded iguana in a gecko. And um yeah, I re- I really, really enjoy um Nortonus. Yeah, Nortonus are absolutely awesome. So you've um, obviously you don't keep anymore, and you go out field herping. I've seen a lot of photography yep. um, you sharing on Facebook and stuff. Is that because yep. obviously your main itch now is the field herping? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, I I don't I don't photograph captive animals, so I have I have I have no interest in photograph captive captive animals. I you know I I will do it to test equipment or to play around with settings or to practice, but um, everything I post pictures of is. All, all wild yeah i only I only, I only photograph and post post wild animals that's my that's my that's my that's my thing that's my that's my that's my passion in life field herping and photographing and and, and yeah photographing them yeah I, I do like the sound of that i i my, my, my relationship with herpetology has changed as i've got older um i uh, for, for for me you know, I, did, I mean, don't get me wrong. This is no criticism of anyone that does any different, because you know, I've I've been a keeper. I've kept huge numbers. I derived a huge amount of pleasure from it, and it made me the person I am today. But where I've kind of got to is, I enjoy them in the wild exponentially more, and I am very fortunate. And you know, I recognise privileged that I, I, I get to go and see these things in the wild. Like I'm a little, I'm a little bit dusty today because I've, I've just, I've just got back from Morocco. I've spent um, four nights, five days herping Morocco, going and seeing a bunch of species that I've always dreamt of seeing, and I've, I've got to go and do it, and that was awesome. Um, Twenty twenty fifth, I, I leave the UK. I, I, I start heading home, but I've got a five day stopover in Singapore. Where I'm going to be going for reticulated pythons, king cobra, um, you know, whole slew of um, you know pit, pit vipers and a few other bits and bobs that. Um, I, I'm privileged enough to have the opportunity to go and do that, and that's what that's what drives me now. You know, I'm I I, I don't I don't want to keep a king cobra. I want, I want to see one in the wild. You know, I, I don't I don't I don't want to keep a komodo. I, I want to see one in the wild, and and ideally photograph it and get a good photograph that I can you know high five myself and pat myself on the back with. So you're just traveling the wild, taking pictures of wild animals now. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much, and um, 
I'm no doubt it's going to hurt my credibility and my reputation, but I, I'm starting to like birds as well. I think that's a true sign of getting old and becoming a twitcher, which is uh, em- embarrassing. And yeah, you might need to cut that out. Actually, I don't. I don't know if I can have the world know that about me. I mean, birds are reptiles, so yeah, they just got lost along the way. <laughs> yeah. So the, the questions that I wanted to ask you is about the hobby in New Zealand. Obviously, I know it's yeah. regulated, but what can you keep as a private keeper in New Zealand? Um, the majority of the natives, the majority of natives, you can be, you can keep privately. Um, uh, so, so I'll start by saying one of my favourite things about the private hobby in New Zealand is native reps, no financial value, zero, nothing. It is illegal to sell them, so it all operates on giveaways and swaps. So you want you want to keep some you want to keep some rough geckos get permitted and ask somebody. You want to keep Duvacels geckos. You want to you want to keep every single species of green gecko go for it just get your permit and that that that's how that works you you know you you, you, will, you will have to start out keeping some easier species to prove to the breeders and prove to the people that are big in big in the game there that you can do it but there's nothing stopping you from doing so absolutely nothing and that's great because there's no appetite for um domestic poaching you know, no, no doubt, no doubt it happens a bit, but there's no appetite for it because it's not like you can go go to the you know west coast, pick up a couple of tuberculatus, and know that you're going to be able to sell them for a small fortune, which is one of the problems they have in Australia. You know, pair of I'm pretty sure a friend of mine said a pair of nephros asper in Australia are about fourteen hundred fourteen hundred dollars, which is eight hundred pound give or take, and you know, it's kind of hard. It's you know, it's it's kind of hard not to understand how there's people going. I can go to this site, pick them up. They're already in the hobby, sell them and pay for a holiday halfway across the world or pay for something I really, really want. So that's, that's not an issue in New Zealand. It's fantastic. Um, but, but outside of natives, there isn't a lot to be kept. Um, legally we can keep the, uh, entire Pagona genus, but only Barbata and Viticeps are in the hobby. Uh, we can keep shinglebacks, but I believe there's only one pair privately, and the person that's got them seems to be totally unable to breed them. Um, we can keep leopard geckos, which are common, and um, and we see a lot of. We can keep water dragons, which are common, and we see sorry, Australian water dragons only only um, in Telegama, um, which are which are common, and a lot of people keep. Um, and, and Cunningham skinks. That's about it. That's about the whole lot. And obviously no snakes. No snakes. So the only snake in New Zealand is the crate at Auckland Zoo. The, the only legal snake. I have no doubt somebody's keeping something illegally because it's too easy. It's too easy to smuggle stuff in, unfortunately. But um, but yeah, I um I, I have I have no doubt um that the or I, I know for certain that the only legal snake in, in New Zealand is the is the crate at Auckland Zoo. That's um it's so alien to what most people know from like the UK and stuff. Yeah, it was a big adjustment for me, particularly being a being a you know almost fanatical snake guy. So obviously, many people this way um, in the West are like, no regulation, this that, ra ra ra. What are the current attitudes in the New Zealand hobby towards it? Is it disliked or is it enjoyed? What's it like? Uh, I think I think New Zealanders know that know that um, it's the responsible thing to do, and um, 
so biodiversity in New Zealand is amazing and their wild places are are recovering um, and in some cases untouched. Uh, the UK, but you know, environmentally is so destroyed and degraded. It, you know, it's it's it, it's almost hard to care. I mean, we've lost so so much here. We've lost so much. You know, you know, you know what what what's what's the issue with having a pet rac pet raccoon? And you know, it can it can join the you know swathes of other pests. Uh, um, I think you to get it a bit more. And if all and if all of a sudden they would say, hey, we're thinking of letting in some new species the the general public wouldn't have a bar of it i don't think really I, I don't think there's i don't think there's any appetite for it whatsoever um and yeah you know there are there are keepers in new zealand who keep the few bits we've got oh we, we've got a few tortoises and tortoises and turtles as well actually i, I forgot to mention those but yeah there's, a, there's people in new zealand that keep you know keep what they can keep and look look overseas and dream of owning snakes and dream of owning iguanas and you know dream of having monitors and I get that. That's cool. But there's, there's just their wants are, are, are not, they don't even register versus, you know, the needs and wants of the country. And um, I'm, I'm personally all in support of it. It's like, if I could keep a snake again in New Zealand, would I? Yeah, probably. Um, do I think me keeping a snake's more important than the, you know, the, the biosecurity of, you know, some of the rare and endangered species that New Zealand have got currently thriving? No, absolutely not. No, not in the slightest. And I might be a responsible pet keeper, but you know, most other people, you know, most other people aren't. You know, you need to look at people. You know, the way people keep cats. You know, people's cats are going out decimating wildlife, totally unchecked. And um, you know, you, you say you've got cats and you keep them in the catio, and they're like, "That's cruel." <laughs> what? <laughs> what's cruel is having them eat every single songbird in a five kilometer radius sorry i said it would turn into a rant again at some point that's that's uh that's like the tip of my cat rant but no that's all good that i like it i like it I, I feel the same way um can people keep tuataras privately in new zealand um in theory there is one person licensed to keep tuatara privately in new zealand who who does but there is not a lot of appetite from the department of conservation to issue um issue um licenses um and so there's an additional dimension to keeping um and and, and working in the conservation space in new zealand that um you know i i i as a you know british person considered when i moved there and um it was, was really new to me and that's um uh, it, 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 like consulting with iwi iwi consultation and um there are you know there is a, a sorry a, a, an iwi is a, is a maori tribe and there are iwi who have um uh, mana well, which is government sort of basically sort of power and government gov governance over certain species so if i wanted to keep a tuatara privately i would have to do a consultation with Nati Kawata, who are the iwi who have governance with Tuatara, and um, and 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 get them on board before I even did my perm before I even did my permit application. So you know the the idea of speaking to a um, group of people from another from from you know another part of the country or you know in, in mostly in 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 the case of um, uh, in English. Um, herpetoculture another another country uh, to get permission to apply for a permit to keep the animal i mean it's it's almost unheard of well it is 
you know, and and, and it's the same process for the zoos. So if if a British zoo was to want to keep Tuatara and receive Tuatara from New Zealand, they would have to fly members of Iwi over to do a consultation and um, have the conversation with them, apply for the permit, and then um, members of Iwi would fly with the Tuatara and perform a ceremony um, uh, when when you know when the, to, to to welcome the Tuatara to to their new homes. And um, it, again, it's it's a, it's a it's a very very different landscape. So, yeah, it's a very different landscape. It sounds. I think Chester Zoo have them, don't they? They do, yeah. And um, Chester, Chester Zoo flew Nati Kawata over, and um, yeah, they worked with Mana Fenua to um, yeah, do do to do the right steps to um, you know have the have the Tuatara come and come and live come and live there. That's so cool. I didn't realize it was like that. Yeah, 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 yep. Yeah. And. Um, any of the so we do we do we, we've got a fair few breed for release programs at the zoo and um we 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 have to we have to we have to deal with and manage with all, all the stakeholders so it's often council landowners uh iwi and and, and ourselves sort of all, almost at a minimum so you know we're, we're uh, at, at the moment we're we're doing we're doing you know huge number of wetapunga releases and um yeah we're dealing with the, we, you know, we're dealing with all of those people to make sure that everyone's needs met everyone's happy everyone understands what we're doing and why we're doing it and we've got all the appropriate permissions um permissions and permits to do that um legally and in in, in a manner that everyone's happy with it sounds cool though i i like the idea of that that level of appreciation for nature oh absolutely yeah absolutely and um what's really nice with um uh the uh moldy culture is the value and the appreciation they have for not only the land and the ecosystem but the but the species as well yeah they um they refer to them as um tonga or tawanga um tonga tonga yeah i'm I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that despite the fact i've been there for seven years my my um my tongue is still very british unfortunately um but the, the 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 literal translation is treasure you know tuatara are a tonga species you know they are a treasure species they are something precious and um, yeah, that level of value and cultural significance. I think I think more species could more species would benefit from having that. Yeah, I do wish the UK was more like that. It'd be much better. So, what did you yeah, uh, what did you, what did you go find in uh, Morocco? Ah, uh, so um, I had I had I had a few particular targets. Um, I really wanted to see a wild Euromastic. I've never seen a wild Euromastic. So um, I got out and um, yeah, we, um, we we saw we saw a few, and uh, I photographed an absolutely beautiful male um, uh, Euromastix uh, nigravensis, um, who's fluoro yellow, absolutely incredible. It was uh, forty two degrees ambient um, when we uh, when we found him. It was thermonuclear, um, but yeah, he was he was pretty special. Um, uh, saw. So, so a, a very badly injured puff adder. Unfortunately, he was he was the only puff adder we found. But um, he'd been he'd been hit with a rock and um, was uh, not in not not in too good shape. But it was unfortunate because it was a beautiful sub adult, absolutely beautiful. Um, but yeah, I was um, I'm, I was particularly interested in seeing seeing um, Ariettans. Um, got a brief got a brief look at a um, uh, Egyptian cobra, um, but it was very very quick, just a juvenile and shot up shot off. 
Oh, what else did we see? Oh, there's there's a few few um few geckos I wanted to see. Um, Stenodactylus, beautiful um or, orange and orange sort of red and yellow um red and yellow in the eye, almost looks like the eye of Solron, which was um yeah turned up one of those and got some good photos of that. Um, a uh, couple of species of Tarantola, but mostly I mostly wanted to see the helmeted geckos, just because again helm helmeted geckos beautiful animals absolutely beautiful and um in my time in new zealand i've become a bit of a bit of a gecko nerd you know ac accidentally but yeah it turned up a bunch of a uh, bunch of really interesting gecko species um pretty quiet on the snake front there's the puff and the cobra but other than that it was just just a few whip snakes um but yeah it was a uh, it was it was quite hard work herping morocco um i've, I've definitely had m more, more productive herping trips but it was beautiful beautiful um environment um and uh yeah absolutely 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 stunning and um uh, ecosystem and landscape it was really enjoyable but i'm uh, i'm hoping i'm hoping to get back at some point because um i didn't i didn't find a tortoise i really wanted to see a wild tortoise um found several uh found several um gracia shells but no 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 live ones but um the again again you know seeing that they were just living in like xeric scrubland 40 degrees cactus succulents not not a leafy green on in, in sight um just living on sand and rock and uh you know it's not how we keep them that, that that's what they want but it's not how we keep if it, it, it feels like most people give tortoises a basking spot of like 28 degrees you know a basking spot's probably close to 40 but yeah they're um yeah absolutely absolutely great seeing these animals where where, where they actually live and what I think, I think if I was going to encapsulate something that I love so much about field herping, it's going and seeing these animals in the wild, where they live, how they live, you kind of gain a real appreciation for how we should be keeping them. And I don't think I've ever gone somewhere and seen a species wild and gone, oh yeah, we're getting this right. This, this looks about right. It's always like, oh, why, why on earth do we do this? Yeah. Well, since, since when's this the right idea? And you know, I um I know it's something that John Courtney Smith's really passionate about. But it's you know it's wild re re um recreation. You know, recreate the wild, take the best of it. You know, jog off the bits that don't serve the animals, but give them the best of it. You know, don't keep them in a boring, homogenous twenty-six degree box that does nothing to serve them. You know, serve these animals, keep them well. You know, recreate the wild. Yeah, uh, I was I was enjoying that, so I just let you run with that. That was that was. Yeah, so, sorry, sorry. Like I said, I do I do often I do often get overly impassioned and start ranting. Yeah, I mean, I I feel very similarly, so I can understand that. Seems like you're really enjoying life now, then. Yeah, I I I'm I am very very privileged to get paid to do what I love. Um, I spend a decent amount of time in the zoo. I spend a decent amount of time in the field, you know, work, working projects, you know, pro professionally, not just not just herping for pleasure. Um, I, 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 I have a very, very good work life balance. Um, I have I have excellent colleagues. I have I'm surrounded by people that I can learn from and help me grow and, and better myself. And um, I'm, I'm doing it all in, in a beautiful country. So I've got very, very little to grumble about. I still, I still try. I still, I still find the odd thing, but yeah, I'm, um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty privileged. You sound very happy. Yeah, I, I am. Yeah, thank you. I am. So we've got one more thing for you. 
And yep. the, the previous question from the last guest was, do you think there needs to be more species diversity in the hobby? Um, no, I'd rather we kept less better, which is probably probably really unpopular. That's probably a really, really unpopular take. But um, we keep so much so badly. There is totally inadequate literature on so much of what we keep. I, I reckon if there was a, a, you know, a list of 100 species that were well-researched, well-documented, that, that, you know, most people kept i i i feel i i just i just i just feel like we would do better by those species and i know there are people out there doing incredible work with odd cryptic lesser known species and they are feeding in and they are feeding into um you know conservation they're feeding into zoos they're they're helping inform and educate people but I think those cases are very, very few and far between. I think we spend a lot of time seeing people picking up cheap wild caught animals that they don't really understand that has cost a little bit of money because you know they're they're literally fresh, you know, fresh out wild, and we we don't know how to keep them, and then they die, and it's a, it's a problem. And um, yeah, I'd rather people did less, better. I have. It's funny you say this because I was literally up the other what's been a week ago and i was i was just thinking about things i was like i've changed my mind you know so i uh, started yeah i was the opposite i was like more species diversity it's like it's better that people work with more species so that education grows and we learn how to like do things which serves like that information going to zoos when things need to be done blah blah blah, blah. And i was just thinking like the other week i was like I uh, I don't care anymore, really. I just want people to look after things really, really well. And I've slimmed down so much of what I think and do. And uh, my entire like purpose of the channel now is just helping people do as well as they can do with what they've got. I don't care about the politics anymore. I don't care about uh, we, how, what what's, what's about and whether we should keep X species and stuff. I almost... I've gone the opposite where I started this podcast. Ironically, this podcast that you're on was about highlighting breeders of obscure species in, in the name of species diversity. And now I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. <laughs> I've gone. Uh, cool. Welcome. Welcome to camp. Let's do less better. I, 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 I love species diversity. I think the biggest travesty of the morph game is that when I first started going to ham, most tables had something different on it. There were species I'd never seen before. People were keeping interesting stuff. It excited me. I was interested. And then towards the end, it was just a homogenous sea of morphs. And, you know, your diversity was, is it a retic morph, a boa morph, a cresty morph, a beardy morph, a leopard gecko morph? And I don't care. I'm not interested in that stuff whatsoever. And it's driven the people that are keeping interesting stuff so niche that it's almost not sustainable because you know for some of these like slightly more obscure species there's a pair in europe or there's a couple of pairs in europe and it can't be done like well and sustainably and you you do it right or not at all and if you have to re-import wild wild animals every single time 
that that isn't sustainable in my opinion that's you know taking animals from the wild just because you want to keep them isn't a good enough reason taking animals from the wild to establish a captive population for long-term captive breeding uh, that's fine that's fine obviously everything has to start somewhere but constantly replenishing replenishing to keep you know one pair of leaf nose snakes from madagascar from the wild every couple of years it's this is not okay it's just this is not really right in in my opinion you know based on my personal ethical compass again i've no doubt you'll have listeners that will go What's this idiot talking about? And, th- and that's fine. You can think I'm an idiot. I don't mind. So uh, I think a general trend that you see is a lot of people think that if something's going to come in wild court, that it should go to someone that's trying to breed the species and not to someone that's like it's a first pet reptile or something like that. If it's in, if it's coming in wild court, it, it should be breeding, not just becoming a pet. Others just been wasted coming from the wild. I think a lot of people think along those lines. But then I think yeah, that's my yeah, yeah. It's like if people want to establish like 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 toad-headed agamas, um, Phyrocephalus mysticeus, they came in in reasonable numbers a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, and the majority of that import went to people that wanted to establish groups, breed them, and supply them to the hobby. Great, no issue with that. That is a I mean, some people will question whether or not wild wild collection of reptiles is okay or not. You know, till, till you know till the cows come home, and that that's fine. But if there is going to be a reason for wild collection, that's it. But reimporting them every two years because you're killing them and you just want to constantly keep them, that's that's not okay. That's that that's that's not all right. And you know, you'd I'd be highly skeptical of anyone that went, oh no, that's fine. You know, there's plenty out there. You know, just keep sending them over and killing them. You know. So I am of the opinion if we're going to take stuff from the wild, it needs to there needs to be a concerted effort to establish a captive breeding population of it. And if it can't be done, leave them alone. Don't bother. You know, we know there are certain species that do miserably in captivity. And even when we put our best and brightest on it, they can just about keep them alive. So if it's one of those species, just leave them alone. Stop killing them. Stop, stop importing them en masse and killing them all. Because at, at some point, you know, it will, it will mean that people can't enjoy them in the wild and you know that and they're being removed from an ecosystem which they are an active participant in so you know just yeah just just sort of think about it really what do you think about positive lists yeah i'm pro positive lists has has new zealand changed your mind for that yeah it has it has um i mean if you know a positive list basically falls into the doing less better category um it will mean that people can work collaboratively to manage you know the genetics of of of, of the species being kept and it will mean it, it, it will just sort of um standardize things a little bit more and it's easy to have a common standard when your species are common when you know, when it's when it's a common species being dealt with um and i think there is value in that and also just from an environmental protection point of view you know, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of reptiles that could be kept in the UK that if they were to escape and establish pose threats to our already heavily under pressure indigenous or sorry, native herptofauna. And, um, you know, the idea, the idea of, you know, a, a species of sn- a snake eating snake, which gets out into the new forest and wipes out smooth snakes, you know, that would be, you know, j- just, just because, you know, we're respecting people's freedom to keep whatever they want. You know that's that's not acceptable. You know, I um I often feel herpetologists can sound a little bit like um pro gun people. Oh, I, I'm allowed to do this. This is this is my right. Is it? 
pretty sure it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not a human right to be able to keep whichever species of reptile you choose. You know, it's a. It's a privilege. And while and when people abuse privilege, you know, privileges get taken away. Some people are of the opinion that if you give an inch, they'll take a mile. In terms of like government, government and regulation. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm 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 really aware of the fact that you know all these things I'm saying. 10 years ago i would have been livid about it because i you know i i you know i i have reaped the rewards and benefited massively you know personally and professionally from the diversity of species i've been able to keep you know i i i benefited from that and uh, and had you know when 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 there was all the threat you know when when the lacy act was you know um l- 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 looming over everyone in the states and you know we you know we didn't know what was going to happen with you know giant constrictors which you know most people should not keep giant constrictors the vast majority of people should not keep giant constrictors but you know even when that was looming you know i was, I was annoyed about that because i didn't think i at the time i didn't think it was fair that we had these things dictated to us but again, I think coming out the hobby, gaining some more perspective, perhaps maturing a little bit, and um, not being not being invested in it has sort of given me different perspective. I th- I think that it would is my opinion that regardless of it, if it's what everyone wants, would it not be a smart idea to come up with a um, draft positive list that's well argued for well evidenced and justified each species in the off chance that the government's like no we're going positive list so the, and the hobby can go okay here's our list it's been done all the work for you and worked out why and here's the evidence for and then the government would be like oh this is the easy option yeah we'll take that and then everyone's already kind of got what got what they wanted in there um rather than being dictated to by people that don't know what is actually applicable to the hobby and things like that yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, the other advice I'd give if you're trying to draft a positive list is do it by genus, not by species. Mm, that makes do sense. It, do it by genus, because um, because if you do it by genus, then um, that then uh, when taxon taxonomy changes, all you know, all of a sudden, you know, if they decided to split viticeps and there was viticeps and something brand new, and it turns out some had viticeps, some had this brand new thing. All the thing that was brand new would technically be illegal until um until um until such a time that there was an amendment in law. So I I I you know I I would do it I would do it by genus. And there's nothing stopping you from having a lot of species. You could have a lot of species on a on a on, on a positive list. But but yeah, I mean I I I I I I would absolutely see merit in what in what you're suggesting if it ever did come to that. The only the only criticism I have of there being a well the, the biggest criticism I have of there being a, a um, positive list um, having lived in New Zealand is our positive list is so small and there's so few species you can keep people can't gain the same exposure and experience that, that like that I did growing up and if I speak to a private individual who's been keeping for 10 15 years who's kept it all it's it's about 11 species across a pretty narrow range. So it doesn't allow 
it doesn't facilitate as easily for the same level of homegrown herpetologist that, that you get in that you get in um, the UK. Um, a lot of the a lot of the home the you know the best of the Kiwi home homegrown herpetologists who, who are outstanding by the way you know standing standing outstanding bunch of professionals um, they they've all come through the native route. They've kept large numbers of natives. They've learned natives, and they may have had an exotic or two, just just for something a bit different. But um, but yeah, it definitely it definitely sort of stifles and caps what can be done. I think some but of the yeah, main concerns. Oh, sorry, there's a gap there. Right. Come on, carry on. I was, I was just going to say that, but but I mean, but ultimately, there are there are pros and cons for both. I just think we need to make sure we're focusing on the right pros and the right cons, you know, and not just because I want to, but you know, because I want to is a really, really weak argument. I think some of the issues with positive lists is that it's going to be the, the overwhelming opinions. That it's going to be struggle. It's going to be a struggle to enforce it. Like it happened in Norway and shit just went underground. Yeah. Um, Belgium yeah, yeah. shit's gone underground. Um, and it might cause more welfare problems from things not having access to veterinary care because it is illegal rather than what do you yeah, think about that? You could make the same argument venomous snakes. There's a DWA license. Um, plenty of people keep without a DWA and that's a problem. But if you said to me, Oh, should we should we remove the DWA and just let people keep venomous snakes willy-nilly because we don't want to push it underground no absolutely not you know it should it should be it should be legis it should be um, regulated and um i I don't i don't think i i always feel the it will push it underground arguments quite 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 a weak one you know i understand with like substances it's a problem but you know no no one no one's really addicted to keeping snakes you know it's not like alcohol or 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 drugs you know I, i think um I, I just think there's a proper way of doing it. And if a few people keep illegally, it's just it's just it's just not the end of the world. You know, there's there's plenty of people keeping illegally now. You know, there's there's people keeping it keeping things illegally now. And that's not gonna change if we if we, if you know if the government were to bring in a bring in a positive list. Yeah. My hmm. my, my, my biggest my biggest concern would be um would be the the effect it would potentially have on the livelihoods of um you know of, of, of reptile shops. That that would be my bigger concern. They'd have to go harder on dry goods and um accept that there wouldn't be that diversity in um in, in the livestock. But I'll, I'll be honest, the um the pet license reform laws that came in did far more damage to um to reptile shops than than a positive list you know ever would. Are you talking about the AEL? No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I knew that there was all that new legislation with sizes, what could be done. Um, yeah. is, is that it? Is it animals activities license? Yeah, that's that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. I think people have generally adapted. I mean, again, I, I keep going back to um, the one up in Grimsby, but where well and exceeds things like that i mean there's even something brewing now where the minimum is going to be something like for a snake it would be the length of snake by um two-thirds of the snake in depth by one third of it in height which means for um like a royal that'd be like a four by if it's a four foot royal like a four by two and a half deep by like i just under two feet high and yeah i'm like I think some shops can do it. Some shops can't. And it's like, 
where do you draw the line of like sink or swim or should we just stay stagnant forever i don't know i i i'm not getting involved with politics anymore i'm just trying to help people look after animals but i don't know the answer i i i don't it's not my world it's not my problem but what i would say is pet shops are only ever transitional facilities it is not that animal's life at least it shouldn't be and i absolutely agree that there should be a minimum standard for the long-term housing and husbandry of these animals but pet shops should just be temporary housing and i think temporary housing can be done well and ethically under under the, the you know the 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 under, under the optimal of what the animal needs for long-term husbandry so but but you know again my my opinion on this is basically irrelevant so we are at basically two hours now with the looks of it so i wanted you to give a question for the next guest did you have anything that you have in mind for the next guest yeah um following our following our um conversation around the positive list um i would like you to ask your next guest um what their feelings sorry what they feel the negatives of the enforcement of a positive list would be and how those negatives weigh against the the obvious positives and um yeah just have a bit of a discussion around the what their thoughts and feelings are around that brilliant it's a, it's, i've got a really good guest on for the next one um with a lot of experience and it is involved in zoos and education stuff so i think that might be a very oh, layered answer so that is a brilliant question oh. for this guest um other than that thank you so much for coming on dave it's been a brilliant episode and i'm sure people are going to really enjoy this so thank, th- thank you so much for coming on my absolute pleasure mate i'm uh i'm sorry i've been a little bit slow on the uptake and a bit dusty but um yeah it's been an absolute pleasure to be here and uh hopefully i give you a good episode no it's, it's been a brilliant episode Cheers. Thank you, Mike.